Welcome to the Landmark Podcast. I'm Jason Calhoun, pastor of Landmark Pentecostal Church in Texarkana, Texas. We encourage you to visit us on the web at landmarkupc.net for a schedule of services and upcoming events. We pray that you are blessed by the message today. Thank you again for listening. Very careful to watch yourself the next time you got up. And many people found out whether they were called and sent or they just went in that class. And so... Uh, Brother Odell, he he was quite a guy, and I remember there was one particular young man that he was a marriage student, and he was so discouraged after he had had his outing there preaching, and you'd preach to the class, and he he preached, and when he got finished, Brother Odom got that pad out and went down through all the things that he had said wrong. And uh, he went home to his wife that night and said, I don't think I'm called to preach. And his wife secretly went back to Brother Odell and said, you know, he said he didn't think he was called to preach. And so the guy asked him, he said, uh, or Brother Odell asked the guy, he said, would you be willing to preach one more time, one more time before you quit? He said, yes, sir, I'd try one more time. So he got up and he said, you got to you got to finish the class, so you got to preach one more time. So he got up and preached. And when he finished, Brother Odell, you got to know Brother Odell to appreciate this, he said, bend over, son. And he kicked him on his backside. I know that sounds pretty harsh to you. That's, that's what we had to go through in Bible school. He kicked him on his backside, and he said, now don't ever say you're not called to preach again. That was a wonderful sermon. So the guy got his confidence back. I may say a lot of amens and hallelujahs, and I know I'm going to say a lot of us here tonight. But I am going to break a cardinal rule, and that is that you're not supposed to teach or preach from these lists that are given in the Bible. In fact, a list like uh, genealogies, they tell you, stay away from them. You can't pronounce those names anyway. When you get up there, you're sure not going to be able to pronounce those names. One more Bible school story. One of my very best friends was, was preaching. We had what they called student. They had the real landmark and, and that was a big conference. And then they had the student landmark about two weeks prior to that. And they would post the names up in the cafeteria of the preachers that was asked to, from the students to preach that. And uh, of course nervously you check the list or check for the list several days before it ever appeared. And then you would check the list once you saw it appear and somebody came and told me that my name was on it and that my best friend's name was on it and uh, that I went to Bible school with and uh, his name was Mickey I won't tell you his last name but Mickey got up and was going to preach about Mephibosheth I don't recommend that your first sermon especially in a big crowd and uh Preaching in that main building at that time, probably one of the largest uh, oneness Pentecostal churches in America. And uh, he could not forevermore save his life, save Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. He'd finally get it out. And uh, we was all cheering for him, but it didn't help much. 
And uh, anyway, it, it's a tough deal, and, and there's certain things that you don't do. And those, those lists, they tell you to stay away from those lists. But you know our world is made up of many, many lists. Some of them we try to, to get on, some of them we strive to get on, and others we do our best to stay off of. Students want to be on the dean's list. We always like to be on the guest list. We certainly at Christmas time want to be on the gift list. And we want to be on the acknowledgement list. Uh, people want to be on the donor list. And there's others that uh, you'd like to be off the call list. How many would like for the telemarketers just to forget your name and forget your number? Come on now, there's more of you can be honest than that. But I fully, or too fully, appreciate this list that Paul is referring to here in 1 Corinthians 16, the one that I read to you from listing these names. One must really understand the context that it's written in. And you've got to start, and I know... That's a problem with, uh, with, with preaching service after service through the week. You're studying these things, and it's hard not to let it out in another sermon if you've got it on your mind. So I, I'd been studying about this particular message when I preached on Sunday morning. And so I had it on my mind. I talked a little bit about Corinth and described a little bit about Corinth, but just for those of you that were not here and able to hear that, and maybe just to remind us all, you, you need to understand a little bit of the context, and you need to understand about Corinth. It was refounded by Julius Caesar a hundred years before the Apostle Paul would arrive there, and it was a place of revelry and sin. It had a seaport kind of in a little area of Greece there that you know Greece is several islands that are scattered out but this is on that place where there's a little neck of land between two seas and it was known for its marketplace and as I said Sunday morning people would come there to buy ivory from Libya spices from the Middle East rugs from Persia and and other things whatever it is that they had need of and the background for the establishment of the Corinthian church is found in Acts chapter 18. You might remember in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is preached in Athens, or just on the outskirts of Athens, on the Acropolis there, Mars Hill. And he didn't have very much success preaching. He preached to them about the unknown God. Marvelous and one of the most, uh, I don't know if you're, if you're studying sermons and studying uh, Paul's preaching, this would be one of his premier sermons that he preached, yet it didn't have much effect because they were so steeped in their traditions. And the Bible says in 18 and 1 of Acts, it says, after these things, after this outing at Athens, preaching there on Mars Hill, he departed from Athens and came to Corinth. 
And once there he joined himself, and if you study the Greek there, it means that he glued himself. He attached himself to Aquila and Priscilla who were tent makers. And there seems to be evidence there in chapter 18 that he did his part in preaching and teaching during the day. And then at night they, Aquila and Priscilla, were tent makers and he would join with them and he would make tents to to perhaps make a living. And in 18 of Acts it also tells us that the church in Corinth began in a house and eventually grew to become a very large and prosperous church. Yet it still had its challenge. It still had issues. And we don't take much of a perusal of the first epistle to the church of Corinth to find these things out. Matter of fact, I was thinking today as I was praying more about this and, and, and fleshing some of these thoughts out, when we are dealing with issues and trying to answer questions and trying to deal with people problems and all those kinds of things in a church, we always refer back to 1 Corinthians as being sort of the textbook for all of that. And the Apostle Paul has always been the great settler of disputes in the New Testament. And there's a lot of things we wouldn't know about serving God and what God expects of us without the teachings of the Apostle Paul and more specifically the teaching that comes through the first epistle to the Corinthian church. And so this is a church that of course grew big, but it did have its challenges, which tells me right here from the outset, just because the blessings of God and the goodness of the Lord is upon something and there's... uh, favor and prosperity that comes does not mean that there's not going to be problems. Doesn't mean that there's not going to be challenges. We got this mindset and I suppose it comes from the way that we have been raised and and our western mindset. We've got this attitude and 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 thought pattern that if 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 something is of God, if something is blessed of God, it must not have any problems. There must not be any roadblocks. There won't be anything to overcome. There won't be any opposition to it. But can I tell you right here tonight that you better not expect that to be uh, the thing that supports whether or not something is the will of God or if God is in it whether or not there's opposition to it. Matter of fact, it may just be the opposite. It may be it's a good sign that God is blessing and God is working when there is opposition. Because he said right here in this text that I read to you tonight, there is a great door, a mega door that's been opened unto me, but yet there is many adversaries. But I feel it's the will of God I stay here until a specific time because I know that God is going to bring revival. And Ephesus grew to be the greatest, as far as size is concerned, the greatest church in the whole entire New Testament, the biggest church of the New Testament. This was, of course, just as he said, a mega door, a large and great door that was open, but there was still opposition to it. 
What am I telling somebody here tonight? Just because you encounter opposition, don't take that as not being the will of God. Sometimes you're going to have to fight through till there is a breakthrough. You're going to have to fight through until you conquer and you get victory in your life. Matter of fact, you ought to be a little wary when, when there's nothing resisting you. You ought to be a little weary when, when for a long period of time you've not had any test. You've not had any trial. You've not had any difficulty. Because the devil doesn't resist folks that he already possesses or he already has. But I'm going to give you a little perusal here very quickly of the first epistle to the Corinthian church. So we're just going to march right through this. I spent probably a year, year and a half, not every Wednesday night, but just about every Wednesday night, preaching through, teaching through 1 Corinthians. But tonight you're going to get it all sandwiched into this one service. So hang on, fasten your seat belt. We're going to be moving fast. But the first four chapters, the Apostle Paul is endeavoring to address the infamous divisions that existed in the church of Corinth. Some were saying, if you read through that first chapter, some were saying, I am of Paul. He was the founder of this church. And I was baptized by him. And bless God, there's not been a pastor since Paul that is worthy of my total respect. And so I am of Paul. I connect back to the founder of this deal. And then there was some that said, I am of Apollos. I mean, he was a young whippersnapper. He was vibrant. He could preach. He had a lot of fire. And uh, uh, he was a he was just, uh, you know, when you think of a preacher, his... His name's out there beside of it. And that's who I identify with. And then there was some that said, I am of Cephas or Simon Peter, the rock. I go back to the original Pentecostal preacher. I identify with the apostle Peter. And then there were some that said, I mean, these were the real spiritual group. They said, I am of Christ. I get mine straight from the Lord. You know, there's still some of those folks around today. I'm more spiritual than everybody else. I get, I got a direct online connection with God himself. He speaks to me. I don't need a preacher. I don't need a church. I, I, I just got a direct connection with God. Any, anybody ever met it? Don't raise your hand. In verse 10, he tells us, How he deals with these divisions. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. There doesn't need to be division among you. And that there be no divisions among you, that ye be perfectly joined together. How did the Apostle Paul How did he restore unity and get this perfect unity that he's talking about? I'll tell you how he did it. It's in verse 18. He says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. You want to get rid of division, I point you to the cross. If you want to bring unity into the situation, 
you understand that we all are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no big eyes, little U's. Everybody had to come by way of the cross. Everybody had to repent of their sin. Everybody needed the blood of Jesus that was shed for them to cleanse them of their sin. And it's because of what was done at the cross. It's because God himself manifest in flesh came as a perfect sacrificial lamb and died for you and I that were even able to be in this church. And because he humbled himself, we need to humble ourselves and realize we got to work together to get the work of God done. Amen. If you're thankful for the cross... You ought to clap your hands and praise the Lord for it. And, and so anytime, anytime you feel uh, a rub coming between you or another brother and sister in the Lord, anytime you feel division, anytime even in your own family when there seems to be division, you can always get back under the cross, the shadow of the cross. It puts things in perspective. It helps us to realize, amen, just how dependent we are upon the mercies of God and the goodness of God in our life. That we didn't get here on our own. We don't pull ourselves up by our own bootstrap. We, we didn't get here because we were good. We got here because He is good. Because He is merciful. Because He is gracious towards us. So the preaching of the cross was the thing that brought them together. And that's still, and there's a lot more that I could deal with in those four chapters. But again, we're trying to get through this, and there's 16 chapters. We're going to get through it tonight. And so, uh, first, just take my word for it, the first four chapters, he's dealing with these different divisions. And then chapters 5, 6, and 7 deals with the subjects of immorality and uncontrolled appetites of the flesh. And this is a pretty prickly subject. And there's some things that are going on evidently there in the Corinthian church that even when I read them, I hate to talk about them in mixed company. And if you need a homework assignment, you can go read that for yourself. I'm not going to talk about the specifics of the sin. That's not what is important here tonight, but there was some pretty gross immorality that was taking place within the church. So for all the folks that said they didn't have problems like we have problems today, go read those few chapters. And you'll find out, hey, those folks were pretty rough too. They had some issues. And they were coming uh, from a mighty long way into uh, living for God and serving God. And so, how does Paul address these issues in these sensitive situations? Well, in one case, he said, the way that we're going to handle this through church discipline, he said, we're going to turn this person over. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to turn them over in the mercies of God. We're going we're gonna to release them. If they don't want to change, if they don't want to repent, we're going to release them. And, and, of course, dealing with immorality, and I don't really want to get all plugged up here, but let me, just, let me just say this. After the first admonition and second admonition of anything the Bible says, then uh, it talks about rebuke, and if a person doesn't receive that, then just uh, let them go. 
in other words. And, of course, we always work. The Bible talks about ye that are spiritual, restore such a one. We always work towards restoration. But if a person doesn't have it in their heart to change and they're not repentant in their spirit, you certainly don't want that spirit to, to spread like cancer through a congregation. And there has to be a limit of what you can tolerate and what you can put up with. And, and that's what he's talking about. He said, we're going to turn him over to the destruction of his flesh so that maybe God can get his attention through all of that so that his soul might be saved. He may come back at a later time and decide that he needs an altar. And when he does, we're going to receive him with open arms. But right now, we want him to know that we're not going to tolerate that kind of behavior in the church. And so, uh, it seems pretty harsh there. But he emphasizes in these chapters what is to be the remedy for carnality of this kind and sin of this kind and how to resist the temptations of immorality is to have a true relationship with God. Because in chapter 5, I believe it is in In verse 24, he writes, abide with God. Abide with God. Connect yourself to Him. Amen. Get a relationship with the Lord. And serve God, not part-time, not just when you're at church, not just when you're in the company of other believers, but serve God 24-7. And it won't nearly be as difficult if you've got a commitment to God that is full-time. People that have trouble serving God want to get their blessing on Sunday and they want to forget God the next three days until they arrive back on Wednesday night. But that's not how you successfully serve God. You serve God by living for Him each and every day. Crucifying this flesh each and every day. Paul said, I die daily. I gotta get a handle on this flesh every day. I gotta, I gotta commit myself to God every day afresh. I can't let one day go by without coming back to the altar and saying God I repent and I need you to help me to follow you and walk with you and serve you and be led of your spirit today today but can I tell you that pure heart begins with a pure mind pure thoughts out of the abundance of the heart The mouth speaketh, and the Bible said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So you can't separate the two. You begin to think thoughts and dwell on things, and it'll turn into action on you. It'll turn into deeds. You begin to commit those acts and those things that you allow to enter into your mind and you dwell upon. So you have to at some point, start with saying, God, I want to dwell on things above and not on things beneath. I want to set my affections, in other words, as the Scripture says, on things above. 
I want to, the Bible said, if there be any glory, if there be any praise, think on these things. And it lists those things that we need to be thinking and dwelling upon. I realize we live in a world that is corrupt, uh, and that's why we have to limit how much intake that we get from this world. The music that we listen to, the things that we look at, we have to be very careful about that because we're consuming those things. And as you consume those things, they're becoming a part of your thought process. And you can't allow that to enter into your mind and it not turn into deeds and actions. So you got to learn how to feed on the Word of God. you got to learn how to feed upon coming into His presence and, and getting into His presence and receiving the strength and the grace that you need through prayer. you got to learn how to think on the good things of God and dwell and meditate. Come on, meditate ain't a bad word. That's not just talking about things that happen out there in the Middle East and, and the teachings uh, that, that we, we certainly don't believe in. But the Bible talks about meditating on His Word day and night. So get the Word in your heart and meditate on it. Think about it a little bit. Think about the promises of God and what God is able to do and the prayers that God is able to answer. And you won't have time to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Amen. And we live in a very addicted world to technology and I'm not preaching against technology it's here it's here to stay but I think what I am preaching about is controlling it in your life what I am talking about is getting a handle on it not letting it control you if you're not careful that thing that thing that you call an iPhone for those of you that are Apple people or if you're a Samsung or whatever person, whatever they got, it's in fear, whatever it is. I'm just kidding. Anyway, uh, slowly catching on there. Those things will distract your prayer time if you're not careful. I did a little reading on this because I'm doing some, some research concerning being able to successfully communicate in a worship setting to Generation Z, which is those born after 1995. Well, they, I don't know how many, I, I can't remember from from just pulling it up and, and without, uh, it's written down somewhere, but how many times they, they feel the need in a day to, to look at their phone? And I, again, I'm not preaching against this because I know some of you can't hardly go through a church service without touching your phone. <laughs> Down to about three amens and one hallelujah. But nevertheless, it's a fact. And I was listening to Caleb. That's... That's almost, oh, that's almost sanctified. It isn't quite, but it's almost sanctified. It's better than anything else, I guess, on the radio. And they were saying how many people Facebook during church, and they were almost kind of justifying it. And it wasn't even really, uh, you know, uh, scrolling through Facebook. And, well, I can listen to the sermon and Facebook at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Well... 
You don't like it when someone you're talking to is sitting at the table scrolling through Facebook while you're trying to get something across to them. And you try a job interview, and you're sitting there on Facebook scrolling through it. And let's see if you get the job. And yet you want to go to heaven? (laughs) Don't get me started. But this generation, to be able to connect, well, I'm telling you, I can't keep my Bible up here for nothing. To connect with them and communicate to them that are so connected to technology. And again, it's here to stay. I don't believe we're going to get rid of it, but we've got to get control of it and our appetites. If we're going to be what God would have us to be and we're going to please God. We've got to have a relationship with the Lord. A real relationship with God will improve all other relationships. It'll improve your marriage. It'll improve your relationships with your fellow man. It'll improve your relationships on your job. If you have a relationship with God, you'll respond right to hard situations, difficulties, and challenges, and things that come against you. You'll be able to deal with it better if you have a relationship with God. You go a few days without praying. Boss gets on your nerves a whole lot more so. For some of you, you, you say, what are you talking about, three days? I'm talking about three hours I had that problem. We better move on. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. God deals through the Apostle Paul in these writings with the debate that arose And you may feel like this doesn't even relate to you and I and where we're living in our day, in our culture, but he's talking about meat that was given to idols. And you say, how does that relate to you and me? Christian liberty versus the weaker brother or Christian liberty and the weaker brother here. You understand that these Corinthians were were Greeks that were coming out of idolatry. I told you that uh, their goddess Aphrodite's had a a temple that was up on a high pinnacle there in Corinth. And there was all the, the goddess of sensual pleasure was what Aphrodite's was. So you can only imagine all of the debauchery and the sinfulness that was happening in Corinth. And they would sacrifice thousands and thousands of sacrifices would be given to these goddesses and idols and these things and and uh course after the sacrifice was made there was something that needed to be done with the meat and there was actually sort of like cafeterias or restaurants that were being operated serving this meat that had been sacrificed to idols and these people that were coming out of that culture they were astonished that these Jewish saints that were mingled in among them could go and sit down at the table and eat that meat as though it was nothing. And Paul said, we know that these are nothing but dumb idols. We understand this is just, this is just stone and wood. You, we got that. But you got to understand this was, this was something that was tied to what they worshipped and they gave themselves to for years. This is what God saved them out of. And you're going along like it's nothing. I understand it's nothing to you because you weren't bound by it. You, I understand there's nothing to you because it wasn't a problem with you. But it's causing them to stumble. It's causing them to wonder 
what, what in the world's going on, dude? This is what we got saved out of. And, and look at them. They're acting like it's nothing. They're eating that meat that was sacrificed. They're not sacrificing, of course, or participating in all of that. But they're, prof- they're, they're eating and, and they're allowing people to profit off of the meat that was sacrificed to idols. And this was a disturbing thing to them. And so Paul had to address this, and it takes quite a long time to do it. And so, you know, you say, how does that relate? There might be convictions that a person has in their life that God has placed that is above and beyond what would be the church standard or what the Word of God teaches. But it is a safeguard for them. It's a safeguard for them because if you're sensitive to God and you're walking with God and you're praying, you, God knows what you have the propensity to do. He knows us. We don't know our own heart, but God knows our heart, the Bible says. And so he's aware of what may be a challenge or a trouble, uh, a troublesome thing for us to get involved in or be connected to. And what it may lead to, and it may not even be that it particularly is sin, but it may lead to sin in our lives. And so there's a personal conviction that comes into individuals' lives. And we don't hear that as much as we used to, but I'm going to tell you, God did stop giving people convictions. People just stop praying like they used to, and they don't develop them like they used to. But personal convictions is a good thing because God... Is, is, is speaking to you that if you, I'm just going to give a general example, but, but you, you, well, if the shoe fits, wear it. Uh, some people, they may have a, a propensity for gossip. Well, they don't need to be hanging around people that have a habit of talking about folks all the time. You don't need to be around that crowd. And if they've got the you, you just remember one thing. Anybody that will carry a bone up will carry one off too. Anybody that will talk to you about somebody, they will probably talk about you to somebody else. So that's always a good thing to remember. And there's many things that we could discuss, but meat sacrifice to idols was a big deal to these Corinthian folks that were saved out of that and for them to sit down and eat. And he said, I know it's no sin per se. You can't Put a definition of sin necessarily on it. But you ought to be thoughtful and mindful of your brother or sister in the Lord. And that's still very true. The Bible talks about not removing another's landmark. A neighbor's landmark. It talks about being respectful towards that. I remember the sneers that I received from from some folks one time because of a particular conviction that I had, and I thought to myself, obviously they've not read these particular chapters in the Word of God. They don't understand this particular concept. Don't sneer at somebody that wants to draw a little closer to the Lord. Don't ridicule them or look down your nose at them and, and put them under pressure to go along with you, but respect that conviction that they have in their life, and God will bless you for it. Can you say amen? And, and so... That's what he's dealing with in those chapters. And then in chapter 10, he's talking about murmuring and complaining that's going on. And he takes them back all the way to the children of Israel in the wilderness. And in 
chapter 10, verses 9 through 11, he said, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition. In other words, it's still relative to us today. It, it may have happened back there in the book of Exodus, but it's still good for us to listen to and, and receive as an example and a guideline today upon whom the ends of the world. We live in the end time. We live in the last days, but that, that happened way back there, that's still human nature, and we're still dealing with it today. Israel lacked gratitude. That's what caused them to complain. Little, little complaining takes place and murmuring takes place with a, with a person that has gratitude in their life. A person that is thankful. A person that remains thankful. A person that is quick to give praise and thanks and adoration to God. Doesn't have so much trouble. Doesn't have so much difficulty keeping themselves or refraining from complaining and murmuring all the time. Life's unfortunate events and 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 situations they just want to you know always well that's not very attractive folks that hinders our witness you know life's going to happen to every one of us how we we can't control that but we can't control our response to it and if we want to be attractive to this world if we want people of this world to understand the importance, to understand that we serve a God that is great and mighty and a God that gives joy and gives peace. We need to have a spirit and attitude of gratitude, not of complaining all the time to our co-workers. Come on, is that good teaching tonight or what? Amen. You you complaining all the time. They're going to say, I don't want whatever it is they got. It seems like they just are unhappy all the time. They don't have no joy in their life. They're mean as a junkyard dog. It, it just seems like they don't they don't have they don't have what they profess to have. The joy of the Lord is our strength, the Bible says. You keep the joy, you'll be able to have the strength that you need to go through whatever it is that you're facing in life. They complained about their leader, Moses, and, and on and on and on. And he said, listen here. He said, you think you're the exception, not the rule. He said, there's no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. Everybody has trouble. Everybody has something they could complain about. So suck it up and realize that we got to be thankful Praise the Lord. I'm going to tell you there's a whole lot more good than there is bad in your life. If you got the Holy Ghost, you got to, you got to, you got to testify to that. I, I said, you got it. You got to, you got to agree with me there. If you got the Holy Ghost, there's a whole, God's been better to you than you deserve. God's blessed you more than what you're worthy of. If he gave you the Holy Ghost, you've got mercy in your life. Amen. 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 Come on, let's clap our hands and give him some praise. Paul's cure for this was found in verse 13 of chapter 10. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able. But with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 
If you just have that consolation that God's always going to bring you through. And then in the latter portion of that chapter, he begins to explain communion. And then in that, he said, whatsoever you do, do to the glory of God. Now, hang on now. Don't fall out with me. We're just about finished. But I know you guys thought right here from the beginning. I know he's going to get to chapter 11 there somewhere. Hey, if I can make it through chapter 7 and all the, the things there with chapter 7 dealing with marriage, and if I was able to handle that, I can handle chapter 11. That's no problem whatsoever. I was teaching this one time, and somebody uh, teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and they said, wait, I won't be there when you teach on the 7th chapter. And if you don't know what that is, go back and read it. I want to be there because you're going to talk about marriage and all that kind of stuff. And I want to, I want to be there for that one. And uh, anyway, I was able to make it and wade through all of that so I can handle chapter 11. But chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 is dealing with spiritual headship first before he transitions into spiritual gifts. And this church was one that lauded itself as being super spiritual. And so he is going to clear up some things. He's going to clear up some things in this particular chapter, if you will. Chapter 11, he's going to start by, he's going to, he's going to start by explaining the importance of headship. And he goes through this and he... Then he begins to relate it down to the hair, the distinction between man and woman. And I do believe that what he is discussing here is not something that just pertained to the Corinthian church, as some have said. And as contemporary church leaders have tried to proclaim, I believe that it's something that is still relative, and I'm going to prove that in this scripture. But he begins in chapter 11 and verse number 5. If you have your Bible, follow along with me. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. So what he's dealing with here is the covering. So someone asks, what is the covering? Well, he tells us what that is in verse 15. But if a woman hath long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given for a covering. Some have tried to use a veil and, and tried to substitute that for the natural covering that God has placed upon a woman. And some have said, well, I don't understand this, really, all the language that is there. Well, let me break it down for you. It talks about shaved and shorn being all the same. Shaved, of course, we know is just like my face. It's shaved down to the skin. To be shorn, the proper definition here 
You look it up in the dictionary if you're not satisfied with this. Because I looked it up in the dictionary today. It says to be cut off with scissors or shears. And it's referring to the same as if in that day they would shear sheep. And they would cut the wool off. Covering was the natural covering that God placed upon a woman was her hair. And it was also described as glory to her. And he said, if a woman have long hair, some people say, well, I don't naturally grow long hair. I've lived in places like Hawaii where it was in the genetics of the, the, the island uh, women there. Man, their hair would drag the floor if they let it down because they just had strong uh, genetics to grow. Other people don't have that, unfortunately. Uh, it's not a curse. It's not a problem. It's nothing. It's just difference in genetics. That's not what he's saying is the length of it. He's not talking about the length of it there. You understand that is a Greek word that is used there that is spelled K-O-M-A-O, kamau, literally meaning to let the hair grow. That's what long hair means in this text is to let the hair grow to whatever length that is natural. That is in the eyes of God. He sees that no different than as uh, he doesn't judge the length. He judges whether or not we let it grow. And so, for all of those that say, well, this was just a Corinthian situation. And that's the only way that contemporary church leaders can even start to try to get out from under this, this particular text and try to advocate responsibilities, they say, well, that was just the Corinthian church, and that was just the culture of the Corinthian church, and that was just the custom of the Corinthian church, and I've heard that so much I want to vomit. Because that is a pretty flimsy way to try to explain Scripture. Verse 16 explains it. It says, but if any man seem to be contentious, they want to argue about this, we have no such custom, neither in the churches of God. Not just here. This is not just good for the Corinthian church. This is good for all the churches that I'm overseeing. This is good teaching for everybody. Matter of fact, it's the Word of God. And the Bible says that the Word of God is divinely inspired. And it's profitable. It's profitable to every one of us for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. That we can be fur- thoroughly furnished, the Bible says. So it's in the Word of God. It's, it's there. And if you go back and study church history, you'll find that this was not a new thing. This is not something that, that Paul uh, preached and nobody else followed up on. But Clement of, Alexander, of Alexandria, he also Preach this very same thing. We're talking about early church history. Tertullian, he wrote in his tre- uh, treatise uh, about this very same thing. And on and on and on. That's just, that's just a little bit of it. And then we also can read in here and find illustrations where the dying of hair is discouraged. Now, I know that a lot of you 
uh, don't hear me talk about this all the time. I don't just harp on one thing all the time. But I did feel a little checked to talk about it here tonight. Proverbs 16 and 31 and, and in other places it talks about the gray head or the gray hair being uh, a crown of glory. Jesus in his teaching about it talked about uh, that we're not able to make hair gray. We as humans are not able to make hair white or black. It's up to him that does that. And some, again, have different genetics than others. You ever seen somebody who's 80 years old look like, my Lord, here I am. I start having gray hair when my, when did I come pastor this church? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> 29, that's about when I started getting gray hair. No, I'm just kidding. So anyway, and like I told you on Sunday, I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to keep on, you know, keep snowing on the roof. I'll just keep I'm not going to try to shovel it off. I'm just going to keep it. So, and I think that would be good advice for everybody else. If we're going to preach against, and, and there's, a, there's a plethora of Scripture that talks about cosmetics and just even the very, the very name cosmetics, cosmos, we're, 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 trying, to, we're, we're trying to appear like something that we're, we're trying to, to use something that, that the, the world uses to, to better something that God created. But something that is alive doesn't have to be painted. You don't paint elephants. You don't paint giraffes. You don't paint cows. You paint barns. You paint houses. You paint buildings. Because they don't have any life in them. But if you got the life, the power of the Holy Ghost, you don't have to paint anything up. Amen. You can let the glory of God shine. There's beauty in holiness. You say praise the Lord. Amen. And, and so uh, just, just, just it's here, you know, I couldn't. I couldn't just run by it and not stop off and visit it. So it's right there in chapter 11. If you need further explanation, I'm more than happy to talk to you about it. But I also found that the dying of hair was talked about by early church uh, early church theologians and pastors in the early church historically. Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, neither one of them. They both wrote against the dying of hair. Somebody say praise the Lord. Still want to make the list? I said, man, would you please get to the list? And then, it's amazing to me, he starts launching into from that, he starts launching into the gifts of the Spirit. He said, when you get the headship right, then we can talk about the gifts of the Spirit. You get this thing in order, then we can talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Don't tell me how spiritual you are until you can get some of these things in order. And he clears up the confusion about the gifts of the Spirit. And right in between chapter 11 where he begins, or chapter 12 when he begins really to talk about the gifts of the Spirit, and chapter 14 where he finishes talking about the gifts of the Spirit, is chapter 13 where he talks about love, charity. I'm going to tell you, if you're going to operate in spiritual gifts, you're going to have to have charity in your heart you're going to have to have the if you're going to minister in any way he he, he talks about it right there in, in in chapter number 13 
He talks about it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mis- ministries, uh, i get it, mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. If I don't have the love of God flowing through me, I can give all my money to the poor. I can make all kinds of sacrifices. It won't help me a, a plug nickel. I got to have the love of God flowing through me. Can you say praise the Lord? And then in chapter 15 and 16, the last two chapters, Corinth, again, Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul, but they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. And they believed that, that Jesus, his body was resurrected, but none would be resurrected after. And so they didn't believe in the resurrection of the church when Jesus comes again. But he begins to explain, I don't have time to go into all of that, but he begins to explain that because of Christ's resurrection, we have a hope that we too can be resurrected. And because he went to the grave and and took authority over and took the keys to death, hell, and the grave, we at the last day, at the last trump, are going to join him when he comes back for his church. That is the power and the hope that we have as the church. He said in verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead and became the first fruit of them that slept. He became the first fruit. He was the first partaker. Because he rose, we have this guarantee that someday the church is going to rise. The church that has been planted in the ground is going to rise to meet him in the air. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me. And then in verses 51, I like these verses. Verses 51 through 57, he said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trump, for the trump shall sound. The dead in Christ shall rise incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this incorruptible, or for this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruption shall have put on incorruption. And the mortal shall put on the immortality. Or put on immortality. Then shall we or shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of God. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain, everything you invest in the kingdom of God, someday it's going to be worth it is what he's saying. Every time you have to stand and be faithful and you resist temptation and you stand strong for God and you don't give in to the wiles of the devil that are out there, it's going to be worth it someday. When you step, when you step into glory, you're going to understand that everything I had to give up and everything I had to sacrifice, it was well worth it. 
you talk about, I mean, he's, you know, every preacher knows what a crescendo is in a message. He's getting there, man. He is preaching and he's got them, he's got them standing up and they're clapping and they're rejoicing. They're talking about the resurrection. He is, he is showing to them that there's a hope beyond this world. And then he stops and he said, read it right there in verse one. He said, now concerning the collection. Time for the offering. I know you want to shout. I know you feel like running the aisles. Before you leave, he said, we're going to get an offering. And there he talks about the first day of the week, meaning regularity and faithfulness. And then he talks about everyone. And he said, as God has prospered. That's a good example of what tithing is. Giving our tithing to the Lord. There's regularity to it. As God is blessed, then we give him his portion. And then he gets down here to this list that I've been taking a long time to get to. He comes to this list and he talks about Timothy, Apollos, Stephanus, Achaia. He talks about Fortinaeus and Achaicus and Aquila and Priscilla. This isn't, isn't a, an ancient list of people that are dead and gone as you and I read it because we don't serve a God of the dead. We serve a God of the living. Amen. I said amen. And because God is a God of the living, we can identify with that list. And we can be on that list. And every one of us should strive to be on that list. So when the, as we sing, when the saints go marching in, I want to be on that list, don't you? Let me just tell you how I feel about it. We've went through the different issues and the different problems and the different challenges that existed in that church. And I know that that these saints were not necessarily every one of them from the church or he even visited the church at Corinth that he is referring to here but but these these challenges existed and divisions arose and immortality the temptation of it was there and there were complainers and there was confusion about headship and confusion about the gifts of the spirit misunderstandings over the doctrine of the resurrection and these things all had to be settled up but there was still some people at the end of the day that made the list there were still some folks at the end of the day that remained faithful. There were still some folks that at the end of the day, they, they didn't budge. They didn't, they didn't fall off the list. They didn't have their name crossed out. But they said, I'm still here and I'm still serving God and I'm still living for the Lord. I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter what we have to face, what our, how bad this world gets, what we have to go through. I want to stay on the list. I want to stay on the list. Hey Amen. Is there anybody here that believes you made the list. Amen. And I want to stay on the list. I want to stay in that number of saints that is getting out of this world. You're thankful. If you're thankful for the grace and the mercy of God, why don't you raise your hands with me right now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I glorify your name, God. Thank you, Jesus. Because of your mercy, I'm on the list. 
Because of your goodness, I'm on the list. Because of Calvary and what you did for me there, I'm able to make the list. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Clap your hands to the Lord.